Hey folks, welcome to the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin. My co-host Bruce Kelly is not with me this week. He's a little under the weather. So this is our 50th episode and we have some big guests for you this week. Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab and Shundrin Thomas, President of Northern Trust Asset Management. Lizanne, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Looking forward to our conversation. I, I am also. Let me let me just set the stage here for those of you who don't uh, know the awesomeness of Lizanne Saunders, <laughs> uh, Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist Charles Schwab. As a Chief Investment Strategist, Lizanne's investment strategy responsibilities range from market and economic analysis to investor education, all focused on the individual investor. She analyzes and interprets the economy and markets on behalf of Schwab's clients. She was a regular contributor to Schwab's publications and the keynote speaker at many of the company's corporate and client events, as well as a keynote speaker at many outside conferences. Lizanne received a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from the University of Delaware and has served on its investment visiting committee since 2000. In 2013, she was inducted into the university's alumni wall of fame and gave the winter commencement address in 2014, for which she received an honorary doctorate degree. Lizanne received her MBA in finance from Fordham University's Gabelli School of Business. In 1999, Lizanne joined U.S. Trust, which was acquired by Schwab in 2000 as managing director and member of its investment policy committee. Before U.S. Trust, she was Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Avatar Associates, an original division of Zweig Avatar Group. That's a lot there, Lizanne. You're warming out with just your bio. but um, Well, it's a, it's a sign of how long I've been in this business and how old I am. Not much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know that as a regular attendee at Impact, I always see you there, and I know it's always one of the popular keynotes. And, and I thought it was interesting, in your, your company bio, it says most of your research and, and analysis is designed for the individual investor. But I know you have a strong following among financial professionals, financial advisors. Do you feel like your content is, is generally detailed? Well, it is generally detailed and more detailed and more sophisticated. But do you feel like your content is generally geared toward individuals or the financial professionals? Because it's not basic stuff that you're talking and writing about. No, it, it, it's not basic stuff. I, it, no matter who the audience is, I, I try to make it relatable and understandable so that maybe somebody on the less investment sophisticated end of the spectrum will get something out of it. And I actually find that more often than not, advisors that are on the more sophisticated end of the spectrum are the first to say, you know what, I appreciate the language in which you write, you know, you, you try to break things down uh, simply. So when I think of of the advisor side of our, of Schwab's client base, indirectly, we're still talking about individual investors because that, for the most part, is their client base. So they're the conduit for getting information from the likes of me through to their clients. But I think it's still accurate to say the broader audience is more biased toward individual investors than what might be considered the standard institutional investors, meaning you know, mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here we are toward the end of May, where I'm working on a separate story of a mid-year outlook, looking at the second half of the year. Just kind of off the cuff, what are, what are your kind of thoughts on what we've seen so far this year and maybe where you see things headed? And then we'll get sure. into it a little bit more. 
So I, I think we've had really two distinct phases so far this year. The first phase was January and February, which was a bit of a continuation of what we saw from last summer through to the end of the year, which is more dominance in terms of participation by what I call the newly minted day traders and the impact that they were having in the last summer and into fall, it was much more in the options market where their speculation started to ramp up. But in January and February, it went into the now well-publicized, slightly more arcane parts of the market. So, you know, non-profitable tech and heavily shorted and penny stocks and SPACs and crypto. And really since about mid-February, depending on what asset class we're talking about, we've been in this rotational corrective phase where in many cases you have some of these segments of the market from recent peaks down 30, 40, 50% through this process of rotation. And I actually think that that is so far anyway, a healthy development because uh, up until this started to happen, I'd been saying that I thought the biggest risk for the market was a function of its success over the prior year, which is that it bred sentiment conditions that were really, really frothy. The good news is this that, that, that frothy sentiment was concentrated in those arguably lower quality segments of the market that are now going through a significant corrective phase, bear market territory type declines, which uh, if, if that's enough to alleviate some of this sentiment pressure, I, I think that's good for the broader averages as well. Are you in the camp that we're, we're looking at this cycle of, of value taking over for maybe the rest of the year? Yes, except that I, I think it's really important for anyone talking about growth and value to go into more detail in terms of what they mean by growth and value. So oftentimes the, the conversation ends there. Somebody might say, yes, I, you know, I'm, I, I like value more than growth. Are you talking about you like the Russell value indexes, regardless of what's in them, versus the growth indexes? Do you like the S&P value index over the growth? Or are you talking about value factors? Part of the reason why we don't make tactical recommendations on growth value, even though we do on large, small, at the sector level, at the broad asset class level, is because there's an important distinction between the characteristics or factors of growth and value and index labels. We have, a, we have an underperform on utilities right now. They're all in the value sectors, but they're expensive. They're not growth stocks, but they're expensive value stocks. In fact, if you look at value factors, uh, free cash flow yield, lower price to book, lower price to sales, and you screen based on those factors versus growth factors like long-term growth, the value factors, those companies that screen well on value factors are outperforming even in the growthier segments of the market within tech, within consumer discretionary, within communication services. So yes, I think the value factor should be a focus on the part of investors. That's distinct from saying, I think you should just put blinders on and overweight whatever value indexes you're talking about. Mm -hmm. and, in, and the last thing I'd say on that is even just across those three value indexes, the most popular one, S&P value, Russell 1000 value, Russell 2000 value, the sector makeups and industry makeups across those three are vastly different. So you, you better understand what you're getting in terms of sector representation, because even within value indexes, it's not consistent. Do you think that this is a, a good case for active over passive based on what you just said? I do. I think there's 
There's a lot of reasons why I think the the playing field has has leveled recently. Maybe not for the for for active to to have the kind of multi-year extreme outperformance versus passive like the opposite has uh, occurred. But I think given what we're seeing in terms of dispersion, the fact that equal weighted S&P has been performing much better than the cap weighted S&P, at least this year, you do have the highest percentage in years of active manager finally outperforming their benchmarks. And I I think that environment is likely to persist. It's somewhat trite uh, to say it's a stock picker's market because one could argue it always is. But Mm -hmm. to use that language, I think that's the environment we're in right now, which is already very clear. And I think that will persist. Excellent. Everyone is talking about inflation right now. The Fed says it's transitory, and I have to believe they they hope it is. I got to imagine that you've been paying attention to this. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, last Monday, I wrote a pretty lengthy report on the subject because it's the it's the number one topic that comes up in any of these virtual client events that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. So it, it's called World of Inflation. It's on Schwab.com. Anybody can take a look at it. You don't have to be a client. It's on the all of our research actually is on the public site. But so I think I think the short-term forces driving the traditional inflation indexes up are still with us, but depending on which forces you're talking about, you at least have some that are set to fade in relatively short order, not at least being base effects, because it was in the March to April, April to May, May to June timeframe last year that you saw the decline in level terms in inflation metrics using CPI as an example, which means we're we're right at that point now in 2021 where the year over year numbers are going to have a pretty lofty handle on them, but that should start to fade as we move past the June period of time. Then you've got the supply chain disruptions. And and depending on what what industry, what product or products we're talking about, I think there's already a little bit of lifting of some of those pressures, but others could potentially be another year or two before inventories can be rebuilt and some of those kind of chinks in the uh, supply chain armor get uh, repaired. Then if you think about longer term impacts, here it's trickier because there are push and pull factors for inflation. You've got, I think, still a disinflationary force by virtue of things like technology creative destruction, particularly if we continue to see higher productivity levels. We still have a tremendous amount of slack in the labor market, notwithstanding the skills gap issue, but we're still 8.2 million jobs shy of pre-pandemic levels. We have less power on the part of unions, but there are also sort of push-up pressures on inflation longer term. Uh, we, We know we've sort of exited a period of globalization that brought down and kept inflation low for several decades, really, to the extent this deglobalization that we're seeing right now around the world is a secular force, then that could potentially put some upward pressure. But I think it's really the, the, the wage cycle and the labor market broadly that I think we need to keep an eye on to judge whether the conditions are forming for wage price spiral 1970s style inflation. We don't think those conditions are there yet. So yes, this is transitory. The problem is if you look at the Oxford definition of transitory, it's not permanent, which by that definition, you could say even the inflation of the 70s was transitory. It's just a question <laughs> of how many months or years you plug in uh, to the definition of, uh, of transitory. But 
you know, the Fed, the Fed's, I think, in a little bit of a pickle. Unlike the 1970s, the Fed is actively pursuing higher inflation. Right. Uh, we've never had the Fed doing that. And, and their nimbleness, especially in the face of what markets might do, may be tested. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, I, I think they'll, they'll probably be a bit more definitive about tapering at the June meeting, maybe not with an announced point at which it starts, but I think much more forceful language that, hey, you know, markets, folks, it's coming. Well, there, there, you, you kind of already answered my next question because there have been comparisons between this period and the 1970s related to or relative to inflation. But I mean, can you compare this period to anything else that you can think of? So far, I think this is more reminiscent of uh, what we saw both in kind of the 2005, 2006 period of, of time where we had a bit of an inflation pop. In that case, the Fed actually tightened because that was the, you know, the old mode of thinking about policy changes via the, the windshield. So looking ahead, as Powell has said, they were, they were outlook-based. And now they've become outcome-based, which is basically means that they're now making decisions based on the rearview mirror. So I don't, even if the conditions look a bit similar to 05 and 06, I think the reaction function on the part of the Fed is unlikely to be the same. And then you also have some similarities to the 2010 period, not just in terms of the, the inflation cycle, but even just the behavior of the market is it closes tracks very closely since the March low of last year into this year relative to what we saw from the low in ironically in March of 2009 into the latter part of, of 2010. And I think there's a lot of similarities to that period of time, kind of post-crisis, uh, inflation picks up, growth picks up, concerns start to develop about monetary policy. The market generally does quite well, but had had a couple of corrective phases in 2010. Ultimately, inflation didn't turn out to be a big uh, problem. And I think there are some similarities there. We have a lot more fiscal stimulus this time, obviously. It was almost all monetary stimulus in the 08 period and, and thereafter. This time, it's that double-barreled stimulus. So the fiscal blowout, one could argue, is is also potentially inflationary, and that is what's different. Right. And, and the Fed seems to be kind of openly telegraphing that they're not interested in tightening in the near term. Well, Do they're you... not interested in raising rates in the near term. So the we're not even thinking about thinking about is always followed by raising rates. Uh-huh. I, I think the balance sheet <laughs> tapering will come sooner than that. And I think we might have a better sense of what sooner than that actually means at the June meeting either in the statement or I'm sure Powell will be pressed, no pun intended, uh, at the press conference. Are, are you concerned at all that the Fed might wait too long? Um, I don't know. I, I, I not. Yes, I think that could be a, a potential problem for the market if the bond market starts to show that the vigilantes are are trying to take the reins back from the the Fed. Yes, the Fed has direct control of the Fed funds rate. It has indirect control of longer term treasuries by virtue of uh, of tapering, but we remember what we saw in 2013 with the the taper tantrum. 
And uh, there certainly is a possibility. The reason why they want to be really robust with regard to telegraphing and not surprising the market is is somewhat because of of that experience. But I don't know. I'm not sure I have a, a firm view myself on the trajectory of inflation. So if 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 we do start to establish the conditions for 70s style inflation and it really takes off beyond some of these base effects in short term and the Fed still just digs their heels in and continues to repeat the transitory thing, then yes, I, I think that would be a significant risk for the market. But I, there's you can easily lay out a, a much more benign scenario as well. Okay. Would you, would you consider what's happening right now with monetary policy as as a modern monetary theory? Are we in there right now? Not if you are precise with regard to the definition, because the the sort of pure definition of it is basically an elimination of the the dividing line between government authority, particularly Treasury Department and the Fed. And you can argue that especially in the reaction to the COVID crisis, you did blur those lines a little bit with some of the Fed's backstop lending facilities morphing over into the the fiscal side of the equation. But I I think that separation is, is still very much there, which would suggest what we're doing could not truly be defined uh, as such. But if you think of it in much more general terms, just, hey, maybe we can give this a go of of running massive deficits mm-hmm. without having to pay for them fully and just see what happens. Yeah, that, I, I think there's there's legitimacy to the comments that you know, everyone's an MMT or now. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of how precise you want to be around the definition of what that is. Okay. I want to put stimulus spending and taxes in the same category because they seem to be kind of joined at the hip. What impact does that have on what you're seeing for maybe is as short term as the rest of the year? Well, I think that policy uncertainty has come into play a bit and and you might plug it into the list of reasons why we've had some uh, some volatility and in particular pressure on the either more speculative or more highly valued segments of the market. And I suppose you could tie that to some degree to to policy uncertainty. But to start to apply the math of, okay, if we go to a 28% corporate tax uh, rate, what does that mean for corporate earnings? What does it mean for multiples or do the same thing on the cap gain side? It is way premature to do that. There's not a single spec of the plan, the American recovery or, I mean, American recovery was the one that already had American Jobs Act and American Family Act that has been written in legislative language. We are still quite early in the sausage making process. And what's interesting to me on the tax side of things, and maybe this is because Republicans are just universally against any major tax increases, so they don't really have to squawk loudly. That's their position, everybody knows it. But some of the the loudest voices against sort of full move up to what's in the bullet points of the plan at this stage are the moderate Democrats, you know, your mansions and testers and cinema. And given how narrowly divided not just the Senate is, but the House, which gets less attention, what we're likely to see in taxes is probably something significantly watered down relative to what's there now. And our my colleague, Mike Townsend, who's our man in Washington, 
thinks that the earliest we could see anything that would actually be written in legislative language and have maybe tax increases as part of it, probably not until the, until the fall. And at least based on history, the likelihood of any tax increases being retroactive is very low, which means any tax story is probably a 2022 story. Now, that may not sit well for people who never want taxes going up, but at least from a planning perspective, uh, there'll be there'll be time. All right. Then the, another another two parter here: portfolio adjustments that you think people could be making right now if we're seeing inflation. And then I want to ask you about bonds. So it's not sure. really a two parter. <laughs> so I, I'm 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 going to purposely be broad with regard to the first question because it depends on what kind of investor you're talking about. Are you right. talking about a a young investor who just inherited ten million dollars and 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 doesn't need to live on the income associated with it and goes bungee jumping on the weekends and is a risk taker and isn't going to freak out at you know the first ten percent drop in their portfolio or is the investor seventy five years old and they have a nest egg they can't afford to lose any of it and they need to earn income on it so to apply anything numerical to in an answer to a question like that I I always say shame on anybody that does that because who's who's the investor. So part of the reason why when we make our tactical recommendations there's no percentage numbers associated with it it's just relative to whatever the investor's strategic asset allocation is to those asset classes. So we we have a a, a slight bias right now to international equities more on the developed international larger cap end of the spectrum. So that we shifted to less of a U.S. focus, more of an international focus at the beginning of this year. In November of last year, we eliminated what had been a three and a half year overweight to U.S. large caps, underweight to U.S. small caps. And in, in November of last year, we upgraded small caps, downgraded large caps, basically sort of neutralizing them. At the sector level, we have three outperform ratings. The longest standing one is healthcare. Last year, we added financials. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we added energy to the mix. However, when I talked earlier about factors, value-oriented factors, I think a factor-based approach makes more sense right now than a dominant sector-based approach. There's too much sector, rapid sector rotations happening. And you see it almost on a day-to-day basis. Energy and industrials tend to be bedfellows. And if they're at the top, you can almost be assured that consumer discretionary and tech is at the bottom. And then the next day, you're going to see the complete reversal of that. And that's a, that's a tricky environment for individual investors to try to navigate. So I'd be more focused on what has been a consistent strategy around leadership with, uh, with factors. And then we've also been saying to investors, if you have the ability, the wherewithal, the, the tax implication turnover basis to do it, instead of, let's say, if you rebalance on an annual basis, maybe consider having the rebalancing be more portfolio-based or volatility-based. So uh, stay in gear by rebalancing maybe a bit more frequently. So trimming into these pops of strength that you see and adding to places where there's been weakness and stay in gear by letting your portfolio tell you when it's time to add low, trim high. And often when you eliminate that discipline, investors tend to do the opposite. And uh, I think the, the kind of volatility and the major swings we're seeing within asset classes, within the sectors, 
are affording you an opportunity to take advantage of that with more frequent rebalancing. Again, to the extent you have the the capability and turnover implication reasons to do that. Okay. And now fixed income. I mean, a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people say there's there's a very weak case to be made these days for, for having bonds in your portfolio. Well, it depends on what you mean by bonds. There's lots of categories of bonds. And even in, in the, the, the largest component of the bond market and arguably the safest treasuries, there are numerous strategies you can take. We have been generally, and Kathy Jones is my colleague. She's my counterpart on the fixed income side. So um, I'm parroting to some degree what, what she and her group write about and talk about, which is that there are strategies you can employ. Some as simple as just shortening duration. Others could involve maybe uh, more of a laddered approach so that you have securities on the lower uh, duration end of the spectrum that are maturing more frequently, and then you're rolling into higher yielding securities to the extent interest rates move back up again. We midpoint last year when we saw the dollar funding market settle down after some of the facilities that the Fed put in place, we actually went to an overweight in emerging market bonds for those investors who had the ability to withstand a bit more risk, but were looking for that uh, pickup in, in yield. We have found that there's opportunities for certain investors, depending on taxable account or non-taxable account in the muni space. And then in just general, we would we like to remind people that too often you'll you'll see a headline around the you know bear market and bonds because yields go up on prices go down. The concept of a bear market in bonds is very different than the concept of a bear market in stocks. It is very rare to lose a lot of money given that regular income stream in the bond market. Uh, 1994 was sort of the most recent example of a, of a relatively ugly year, and it wasn't anything resembling the kind of weakness you, you see in an equity bear market. So I think as a diversifier, it still makes a lot of sense. And then there are more nuanced strategies that I think investors can take to pick up yield. The last thing I'd say is there certainly has been mover, movement over to the equity side to pick up yield into uh, dividend paying stocks. The one note of caution is don't ever just screen for dividend yield, rank it in descending order, and then buy what's at the top because a, an excessively high yield for a company is almost always a signal of potential danger. Either that the dividend just gets eliminated outright or you're, you're talking about a very low quality company where even if the, the yield is maintained, you probably have some serious risk in terms of capital depreciation. All right. What what about let's talk about cryptocurrencies. What what's your position on that? And I guess what is the Schwab position? Well, we 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 don't we're not a platform for regular trading in cryptocurrencies because of the lack of of SEC sign off on these. In fact, we are uh, we we're publicly out there saying we're we're still in a bit of a wait and see mode, given that. The, the sites of not just the SEC under Gary Gensler, but, but even the Fed is on this space and not just the crypto space, but the SPAC space too. And until we get a better lay of the land in terms of what the regulatory environment is going to look like, we will largely stay out of being you know, a dominant platform for trading. I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those completely on the, this is absolute nonsense side of the spectrum. But I certainly wouldn't put myself in the crypto fan club 
I, what I know about it, I fall somewhere in the middle. I think the descriptor of crypto as a religion, not an asset class resonates with me. It's very faith-based. When I have the discussion with people who are big crypto believers and they say, but so are fiat currencies, they are faith-based. And I say, okay, but in the case of the US dollar, your faith is in the government, the financial system and the banking system in the United States. I still have probably more faith in those than I do the Chinese miners that mine 60% of Bitcoin. So that the faith argument, I, I the other thing that has been said about cryptocurrencies that I think at this point is brilliant, it resonates with me anyway, as a bit of a skeptic, is it's a solution in search of a problem. Although I don't always agree with the views of Paul Krugman at the New York Times, he wrote an opinion piece, I think it was this week. And it basically just said, well, you know, it's been around since 2009 and there were skeptics back then, but at least now we're using it to buy cars and houses and use it in the grocery store and pay our taxes with it, dot, dot, dot. Oh, never mind. We're not doing any of those things. And with a technology, so to speak, that's been around since 2009, that's a pretty slow pace of adoption. And then the final thing I'd say that doesn't get the attention I think it should, given what we saw with Melvin Capital and GameStop on the short side or Archegos with the media companies on the long side, is its concentration risk. And the case of Bitcoin, and this is the basis for many that have the Ponzi scheme view, the top 2% of holders of Bitcoin, and we don't know who they are, you can look at the wallets and do percentages, own more than 95% of the total market value. Now, that was, that was before this big, significant drawdown. So I don't know if those percentages uh, change, but as of a month and a half ago, when I first looked at the data, top 2% of holders own more than 95% of the, of the value. So I think there's concentration risk there too. And then if people didn't see, PBOC in China just came out and said, no one can buy cryptocurrencies. No financial institution can be a platform for purchasing cryptocurrencies by investors. So I I think that was the most recent sort of hit. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of usage, I mean, Colonial did use it to uh, pay its ransom. To, uh, well, yeah, there's there's pretty nefarious ways it's being used. Right. Uh, I, I just, I, it's not a currency. When people say a store of value, hmm, sixty four thousand to thirty four thousand in a few weeks period of time. I don't know. I I, I can think of less volatile stores of value right. than uh, than that. So I don't know. We'll have to see. Even if the underlying technology and the blockchain and DeFi are with us, that doesn't mean you don't have a, a, a speculative bubble in pricing. That's what happened with the internet in 99 and 2000. It was a, it was a game changer for the world and, and how we live and get information, but that didn't mean there wasn't silliness in terms of valuations back then. And then we may be in a similar situation today. Yeah. You can't really ignore it, though, especially somebody in your position. I'm, I'm assuming you have to watch it and study it, right? I do, because I get questions every time on the rare occasion that I can, will do a podcast like this or a client event, and there's there's no crypto questions. I shut the laptop, and I have <laughs> a, my own little internal cheer that I do. <laughs> okay. But that's the exception, well, not the rule. <laughs> we'll move past that right now, then. Great. You mentioned newly minted day traders. What What is your thought on that, the, the Robin Hood and all that stuff and GameStop? 
So I, I think there's that cohort, that portion of the cohort, I don't think is fully representative of every kind of millennial age or younger investor that may be newly in the markets. So I, I think you have to separate because at Schwab anyway, we've been seeing a younger bias in terms of account openings. But we're not necessarily talking about the rapid fire day trader that is maybe that, you know, Robin Hood type client. So I think there are lots of different personalities, so to speak, within this broader young generation of, of investors. But taking that type of cohort, more of the app-based traders that arguably are FOMO-driven, YOLO-driven, Reddit, Wall Street bets, flash mob, very momentum, kind of willing to jump around, very, very, very short-term oriented in terms of time horizon. There's probably no real investment plan associated here. It's, you know, fire up the app and start trading. And I think there are very positive aspects to this, given that even just a couple of years ago, most people assumed that the market was never going to attract young people, that because of of how many people were burned in the 08 crisis, uh, that just there was just not that cult of equity like many other times since I've been in the business since the the mid 1980s. But for all the reasons that are well discussed, the 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 unique nature of the pandemic, people working from home, having more time, not a lot to do, no sports betting at least for a while there zero commissions, which Schwab may have had just a little something to do with, I think, and <laughs> fractional shares and all of these platforms, gamification. I've been also saying pelotonization because it's not just the gamification. It's how many of these apps and platforms uh, allow sort of the following of a leaderboard and following what other people are doing. That's in essence what happens on social media and platforms like Reddit. So there's that cohort that I think, you know, there's a lot more than just anecdotal evidence that that many of those folks learned some lessons, got burned, didn't either understand what they were getting into risk-wise, especially in the options market, didn't know that there was actual tax implications of what they were doing. But the good news is a lot of those platforms that really didn't provide a lot of disclosures or education are now doing so, either because they realize they have to or their regulators are, are breathing down their we're 50 years doing this at, at Schwab and, and all the way up to Chuck's founding was about not just democratizing investing, but providing education and, and with, a, with an unbelievable focus on financial literacy. So that's the ideal way that we take the cohort that is short-term day trading oriented and morph them into becoming successful, long-term, more disciplined investor. That doesn't mean there's not going to be pain along the way. Fear and greed are always dominant forces in in the market and and cause lots of pain. But I'm heartened by the fact that we have attracted an interest in investing, even if maybe you call it short-term trading at this stage in the game, by the younger cohort. I think that's that's a long-term positive, or at least I hope it is. Okay. Final question here for you, Lizanne. Lizanne, a lot of focus on diversity in financial services right now. You are a, a very high profile person there at Schwab. I know a lot of people look up to you. I, I don't know if you feel like you're an ambassador for women in this industry, but what are your thoughts on where we are right now 
uh, you've been in you know, at Schwab for 20 years. You've been in the business for a few years longer than that. What, <laughs> what's your thoughts? On well, thank that? you for the, the the kind comments. So yeah, 35 years in the business. I started in 1986, which was the year before the original Wall Street movie came out with, with Michael Douglas. And, and that really did, with a little cartoonization, kind of depict the, the environment of Wall Street at that time, very much of a old boys network. And so right at the beginning of my career on Wall Street, there was that uniqueness of, of my gender. But I was just very fortunate, starting at Zweig Avatar, to start my career at a firm that was way ahead of the game in terms of especially gender diversity, but diversity across the spectrum of demographics and race and gender. So I almost was in this little bubble. I I think I didn't quite realize how unique a culture and an organization that was. And then 13 years later, when I moved over ultimately to Schwab, same, same thing, a lot of women in senior positions. And so I, I never had to sort of claw through the the problems associated with with being the minority of being a female. In fact, what I have said to young women, especially college age women who are starting to think about what they want to do with their career, and they'll ask me for my advice on financial services broadly or what segments. And I always say with 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 true honesty that I think being a woman, even back in my day, definitely today, is a benefit. Now, if my goal was to be the CEO of a major investment bank, I probably would have had some more glass ceiling bruises on my head. But it's certainly the nature of what I do. I think being a woman has been a benefit, not a, not a hindrance. And I, given that more than half the wealth in the United States is now controlled by women, you better represent that in your workforce and your client-facing people. Not that every woman wants to only work with another female advisor, but you know, there, there's a catch-up and it, and it reflects the, the simple fact that, that women now control more of the wealth and that needs to be reflected in the financial services workforce. So I think the opportunities for women in this business are phenomenal. Okay. Excellent stuff. Liz Ann Saunders of Schwab. Great to have you on the show. A lot of fun. You answered questions almost as if we did a prep and you knew the questions, but you did not know. <laughs> no, I did I, not. It's just uh, really good stuff. Thank you very much for Thank your you. time. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, now we're going to go shift over to Shundran Thomas, president of Northern Trust Asset Management, which is responsible for $1.1 trillion and assets under management. Shundran and I have uh, have talked several times over the past few years, and uh, he's got a got a great operation going there in Chicago. Welcome to the show, Shundran. Thanks for being here. Jeff, good to be with you again. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's uh, looking forward to kind of picking your brain a little bit here on all things Northern Trust and beyond. Let's start with a little bit of kind of a markets outlook, if you will, from the kind of Northern Trust uh, asset management perspective. I mean, things are they got a little bit wonky there for maybe a week or so, and there's there's been moments. But other than that, it seems like it's uh, full steam ahead for at least the equity markets. But I'm looking at it from a different perspective than you are. Well, I think it's a great question. And I start with the perspective that we're always coming from this, from the perspective of a long-term market outlook. We're advising investors over the long term. And what I like to remind people of is that, by and large, for all the investors that we're advising, they're effectively long the market. 
And so a lot of times people present the question as if it's uh, you know, in the market, out of the market, which is practically never the case. Mm-hmm. And so there are three things that will frame, you know, how I would share with you our market outlook. Because we're always effectively long the market, the important question is, how much risk are we taking? So think about in a portfolio, if I oversimplify, you've got your risk assets, you know, you think of things like equities, and then your risk control asset. And so that's shifting based on our view of the market. How do we optimize the risk that we're taking? Even if we say we want to take risk in the market, as you can appreciate, some asset classes or specific risk exposure or factors will be better at certain times than others. And then the third thing is, while we have a longer term strategic view, obviously there are things that go on in terms of geopolitical factors, other things. So we often have to then think about tactically how we'll be positioned. So in that context, what I would say to you, Jeff, is we continue to be constructive in terms of our long-term outlook on the market, and we continue to have a overweight to risk in our portfolio. To give you some perspective on that, really in early November 2020 is when we move, say, our tactical positioning to more moderately overweight risk, and each of our moves since then has been to increase our risk positioning. In January, we moved to overweight risk in developed and emerging equities. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, in, in February, we shifted some more of our risk budget away from high yield, fixed income, into natural resources or commodities, and also U.S. equity. So that's just giving you a sense of how we've taken risk. And look, you hear a lot today about valuations which are elevated. This is true. PEs have expanded. And so we're very cognizant of that. And so that's why I would say it's also important to think about how we position. So the last thing I would note is, I continue to believe that the shift that we've seen this year, moving from growth to value, so think about that repositioning, uh, will continue to be in play and that will be favorable. And so in this context, I actually do, and, and we do see value in value stocks, as well as given people's concerns as we look further out, more of an emphasis on high quality names. You, you mentioned, uh, I, 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 you didn't give specifics, but you mentioned a, a kind of a, a shift away from bonds. Can you be more specific on that, what your, what your models look like, and how do you make a case for fixed income right now? So, so again, so first of all, if we say fixed income, broadly speaking, to be clear, we've been underweight generically fixed income, if you think of it on uh, like the treasury side and what we would consider high risk control assets for some time. And so what we've said is, uh, even through most of last year, it was a very expensive market to own cash in. So the way that you could think of that, if I gave you a specific example, is not uncommon for people to have a strategic allocation to cash over longer terms of 3 to 5%. Well, we have no allocation to cash. And so if you think about our relative uh, weighting in areas like even investment grade bonds, uh, we would be several hundred basis points underweight, say relative to comparable 60-40 portfolios or benchmarks that you would see. To go back to the specific thing that you had asked, for an extended period of time, we were picking up some of our risk budget in high yield. So relative to, say, typical portfolios, we were actually overweight high yield by several hundred basis points. And that's what I was speaking to. We decided to move that overweight and high yield to a more neutral position, repositioning that early this year in natural resources and then U.S. equities. Okay. What's the Northern Trust asset management line on the threat of inflation? Everybody seems to be talking about it right now. Yeah. So we've been for some time, so for for several of the past couple of years, we talk about 
what we call our capital markets assumption. And one of our fundamental assumptions is something that we refer to as stuckflation. And so we were of, we have been of the view and continue to be of the view that whether it's things like technological innovation and other strong secular trends, they work to effectively keep inflation in check. And so we don't think that secular trend has changed. Now, because of that, when we're seeing the inflation more near term, I would say our position then would be the inflation that we've seen clearly reflected in more recent numbers, we view as transitory. And so that would be consistent with the articulation that the Fed has put forth. I simply put that in the context of, though, we've had this stuckflation theme for a couple of years now. Now, there is risk to that because, again, as we see these things play out, if you think about one of the underpinnings of our longer-term market outlook, you always know where your exposure is. And one of those exposures is, A, the inflation turns out not to be transitory. We actually think that's less likely. But still, even with transitory inflation, it could be the case that inflation expectations are still higher than the market expects or becomes comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I just want to be clear. Did you say stuckflation? Stuckflation. That, that's, our, that's our theme, yes. That is a first for me. I, you guys could put a trademark on that. That's a phrase I hadn't heard before. I've heard of stagflation and deflation and inflation, but stuckflation, that, that means what? We're, we're where we are now? Because, you know, like you just referenced, the Fed said transitory, which uh, I don't know. I, it's transitory, but it seems to be transing, transitioning up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's what about the impact of taxes on all of this? So, again, we're very mindful of over a longer period of time, what the prospective impact of taxes can be. Because appreciating that taxes, there, there's a twofold prospective impact. One is a real economic impact, right? So if in fact, ultimately, organizations or corporations are paying higher taxes, how much might that impact, right? Their earnings growth and also their ability to invest in capital, in uh, business going forward. So that's the real econo- economic side of it. And then there is the sentiment side. If, in fact, even the prospect or the reality of higher taxes affects market sentiment. And so we're very mindful of that. We do think that dependent on where things land, that is a potential risk factor for the market. But I want to be very clear on this. Higher taxes in and of itself is not going to necessarily defer investment and it's not necessarily going to adversely impact the market. And in fact, we have plenty of examples in the past where we've seen markets outperform even in the midst of higher taxes. So really what it depends on in part are two things. One, how does the policy come out relative to expectations? So does it overshoot the expectations of what tax increases might be? That'll affect sentiment. And then what are the other things that are happening from a fiscal policy standpoint? I.e., if you consider some of the things that are talked about from infrastructure investment that can be pro-growth, do those contribute to growth in a way that flows its way through the economy and positively impacts markets? So you have to take those things together. Okay. I want to go back to inflation for just a minute because it it does seem to be something that is a, a bigger threat than it's been in a long time. But the Fed calling it transitory, and, and you seem to be subscribing to that. At what point or what would make you think it's something more than just temporary? Well, I think that if you think about some of the things that the Fed is looking at, I I think it also gives us some clear signals of what it can be. 
So with inflation, there is kind of a supply side and a demand side that impacts where we land. So when I, when I think about one of the biggest effects on that, it's going to be, for example, where wages are. So notwithstanding many things, as you well know, we have not seen substantial increases in stickiness in real wages, right? Right. And so to the extent that we actually see that, right, in real meaningful ways, and that could come a variety of ways. It can just become as a result of people's decisions and supply and demand in the market. It could come as a, as a result of policy in terms of what we do with minimum wages and the like. But there are a variety of things where you could see very real wage pressure, which we haven't candidly seen for several, uh, you could argue for several decades. All right. So that's one. The other part of the inflation equation is on the supply side. So one of the things that has kept inflation in check is some of the outgrowth of just what's happened from a global economy standpoint, right? And so think about all of the different industries where that global competition and the influx of, in a sense, all kinds of products from different parts of the world, in a sense, has had a downward pressure on pricing. So if you were to see some changes in that, think about some of the move towards more nationalism that you've seen in different countries. There there are a variety of things that could happen that could put pressures on that supply side of the equation and drive inflation. Those are the kind of things, if you see substantive shifts there that are sticky, that you could see that become very real and more sticky inflation. Yeah. And and I'm glad you brought up wages because that seems to be the the one thing. And uh, to me, I do see pressure on wages. You're seeing all these employers that can't find workers. And I guess the only way they're going to get workers is by raising their wages. And if to me, once they're in, they're in that, that makes it sticky to me. That is the, that's the glue to inflation. Would you agree? Oh, well, so I, so we would definitively agree on the prospect of that. The, the only thing I observe, and this is just being intellectually honest about it, employers have substitution opportunities. And so what we have to also keep in mind is the the increased substitution you're seeing in terms of technology and or machines sort of replacing the human complement. So there is there are potential scenarios where you actually could see wages increase in a sense, but not necessarily drive significant inflation, depending on what the mix between in the sense the wages are and the efficiency that might be coming from the deployment of technology, say, for instance. And so again, that now there's always some friction in the transition. So to be frank, in that stuckflation theme that we played out, that's potentially where we could be wrong, right? If, if, if again, those developments don't come on as fast to offset you know, some of what you might see in wage inflation in other areas, that's where that could be wrong. So, so I think what you're pointing out is relevant. Just know that there are things that could offset that. Okay, good, good point. Thank you for clearing that up for me. And uh, thank you for using the word stuckflation again, because I can't hear enough of that. I got to figure that one out. I love it. Let's talk about sustainable investing. It's, uh, you know, I cover this area a lot for investment news. I do know that thanks to your your wonderful PR representatives there, that you guys have uh, $130 billion in sustainable investing strategies at Northern Trust. That's not small. That's not a small, but but I don't know how many people think of Northern Trust as in this area. Are you, am I missing something or are, are, do you, uh, do you not fly the ESG flag high enough or uh, are you looking at this as strategies that apply ESG, I guess, screens or, or strategies, but you don't label funds that way or, or help me kind of understand where, 
where you guys are in the sustainable space. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing here is one, not only is that a significant amount of assets, and so if you were to think about uh, among the world's largest investment managers, so we would rank 18th in terms of assets under management. You know, I believe at some of the recent statistics I look at, looked at, we have the highest percentage of our assets in sustainable investing strategies, right? Now, depending on who's counting the pennies, that could be challenged, but that's just to give you a sense. The other thing is we've been offering these on some level for over 30 years. And so we're not a Johnny come lately to this space. I think the reality is, in some respects, you've probably pointed out what we have as an opportunity to further brandish, I guess, yeah. our, our, our PR. <laughs> But what I would say is our disposition is we are more so leading by example. It's an extension of what we believe as investors and our values. And we do believe that that plays out over time. So just to talk about the branding and positioning. And if you think about, you know, sort of where the opportunity set is, I would also say that a lot of the growth historically has been outside of the U.S. And so if you uh, think about even our assets, a lot of the asset base that I talked about in terms of those sustainable investing strategies would be in Europe and in Australasia. And I can tell you without question, we are known well and as a leader in these places in those markets. Okay. But are there efforts underway to, I guess, raise the flag more or draw more attention to yourself on the ESG space in the, in the U.S.? Yeah, so I would say for sure. Now, the, the good thing is it'll just be part and parcel with us our rolling out our strategy. So one of the things that we have done is raised or doubled down our, our, our strategic emphasis on it. We, we have uh, four what we call product pillars across our entire business, and sustainability is raised to one of those core product pillars alongside things like our quantitative investing prowess. If you think about where we're focused, we're doubling down our efforts in some of the vehicles in which we deliver our uh, sustainable strategies. We more recently rolled out a new index, our own proprietary ESG vector index. So there are things that by virtue of how we're delivering our strategies and the products that we're coming out with, we introduce some ETFs in Europe to complement some of the ones we have in the US. And those initial uh, entrees are actually in the ESG space. And again, I can't, you know, sort of front run things that we're doing, but I think I can suffice it to say that we have a, a very robust product pipeline. So between those things, I think it's significant. The other thing I would say is we did recently appoint, I mean, and it, and it was official just in the last couple of weeks, a global head of sustainability. So we're also, we, we've already had a, a meaningful focus here, but as we're increasing our resources and then the opportunities in the U.S. are growing, you're going to hear more from us. But I also think what's going to happen naturally is people in the U.S. markets will recognize more and more the value we bring. All right. Well, we're, we're looking forward to that and I'll keep an eye out for it. And uh, I'm sure I'll be notified by Tom Pinto when, uh, when something like that happens. He, he keeps me in the loop there. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Chandra, I, I wrote a, a profile on you. I 2019. I, I reread it uh, before our conversation today because I wanted to be have it all fresh in my mind. You had been with Northern or have been with Northern Trust for I think 18 years now. Is that correct? I'm in my 18th year, so I haven't hit the 18th year anniversary. But you are correct. Your memory is, uh, serves you well. I'm in my 18th year. Okay, <laughs> and and in 2017, you became the first person of color elevated to the top tier of management at, at Northern Trust Corporation when you were appointed or hired as president, right? Promoted to president. I was right? promoted as president of asset management. That is correct, yeah. The um, 
And a lot of the interviews that you've done that I've looked over over the recently have been related to your your focus on diversity in the I think the the broader financial services space. How much of that is I mean, how much is that a priority of yours? Is that a is that a passion of yours? Do you you feel like you get pulled into that space by virtue of being a person of color? Or I mean, tell me how you balance that because obviously you're in charge of a, a an organization with one point one trillion dollars, you 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 can't just be doing diversity, right? Right. So here's how I would articulate. So clearly, if you have the privilege that I have to lead a global investment business and a leading public company, you know it's a it's a big job with a lot of components of it, and I enjoy all the aspects. But what I would say is there is an opportunity that you have to have meaningful influence internally and externally in a number of different ways, right? What I would say for us as a business, one of the things that we established when I came into this role is I really wanted to engage with our partners so we could develop our first articulation of shared values, right? Values are deeply held beliefs. Now, we all have different values, right? But I wanted to find the intersection of that alongside our articulation, our vision and mission. Jeff, this is very important. We articulated them as passion, competence, intellectual curiosity, but the last two were diversity and humility. So diversity, we articulated as something that was important to us from a value standpoint. This is circa 2017. So this is not in response to what's going on in the most recent 15 months. Mm -hmm. To the extent your values are true values, then they should guide things that you do. So without question, diversity is something that I believe deeply in. And so one of the things that we've done is, is we've driven that. One of the things I'm very proud of is over the last, you know, going on four years, we've assembled, I think, arguably one of the, I think, maybe the most diverse team of, among large or global investment management firms. You know, I have nine direct reports. Five of them are women, right? Of those direct reports, you know, three are ethnic minorities. I mean, you, you generally don't. And, and, and these people are excellent at what they do. And so, again, these are all things that we do, not because, I mean, there's a pandemic or there's social unrest last year. Now, to your question, when we come into this moment as a leader who happens to be diverse, I have a choice to make. And I did make a conscious choice that by using my platform and my voice, I would speak into these issues. I think it's incumbent upon me because of the unique perspective that I have and the privilege that I have in the role that I am in. Now, I understand that everybody wouldn't necessarily make that decision, nor do they have to. And to your point, it's not something, you know, it's, it's an additive thing to, in a sense, my defined job responsibilities. But I want to say, I think every good leader looks for opportunities to expand their influence and use, in a sense, the privilege of the platform and the power they have for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a... What kind of progress are you seeing? Let's let's focus on the positive here in among uh, diversity and in really let's stick to financial services without yeah. going beyond that, which is still pretty broad. Well, I think that so what I would say in the last year plus, the thing that I have seen most notably is an evolution in the nature of the dialogue. I'm not saying that we're as far as we need to be, but we should be very clear. If you think about diversity, and then more specifically, if you got into issues of, say, race, it was the proverbial third rail. And so I, I think it was very difficult to make meaningful progress because, frankly, I don't think that we were truly having candid and fully informed conversations. 
And so I think the opportunity to engage in those dialogues and the willingness, especially for, to, to, for leaders to listen and to increasingly listen with their head and hearts is actually an important progress. Again, more to do, but that's the, 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 we're having some of the best dialogues that I've seen over the course, forget my time at Northern Trust, my entire career in financial services. Now, what we've seen is we've seen select leaders step up and make tangible actions or take tangible steps in two areas. One is really taking a hard look at the diversity in their organization and even their leadership teams and beginning to make some changes. Again, we should be clear, we're still at the beginning of that, but there, there, there have been some substantial individual moves and I think that matters and that's material and I think you have to start sort of the top. And then I think that what we're seeing is companies are at least pausing to think about both in terms of who they do business with. So think about your vendors and your suppliers and, and how they direct even things like their charitable dollars. Do we have a lot more work to do? Absolutely. And quite frankly, I think we've been a little bit further on rethinking maybe our charitable involvement than we have been in thinking on who we do business with. And I think that part is more important. Anybody who've heard, who's heard me says, has heard me talk about this said, equity, equity is where we've got to focus. And so I'll be really impressed when we're investing with and alongside communities and people who look different than traditionally our industry has looked. Well put. Well, for this last question, Chandran, I'm going to, like a good lawyer, I'm going to ask you a question I think I know the answer to. Are you generally optimistic about what you're seeing and, and experiencing out there and on the kind of diversity front? Yeah. So I would tell you very candidly that I have a guarded optimism. I, I think as a leader, you're sort of on the margin, tilted towards optimism. But I have to say this, I'm encouraged by what I've seen particularly many times out of uh, many of our, our younger colleagues in the industry and how they're responding and raising their voices. Jeff, as you can appreciate, this is true for you and this is true for me. We've been around long enough to know that there have been other periods of time where these issues have come to the fore. I, I know enough and I'm a big student of history to know that there have even been movements from some period of time. But then we have to overlay that with a track record of five or six decades on issues like this to honestly say, did we make really meaningful progress on the things that are measurable? And so we know what that track record is. So while I am encouraged, I am optimistic, it is guarded. We have to keep this conversation at the forefront. And most importantly, and this is particularly for leaders, we actually have to stand up and lead and be accountable for actually making real, tangible, measurable difference. All right. Well, that's good inspirational stuff from Shundran Thomas, President Northern Trust Asset Management. All that, and he's in charge of $1.1 trillion over there. So imagine that. Thank you very much, Shundran. Thanks for helping us out and, and walking us through it and enlightening us. My good pleasure. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to The Investment News Podcast. I want to thank our guests this week, Liz Ann Saunders of Schwab and Chandran Thomas of Northern Trust Asset Management. also want to thank our producer, Stephen Lamb. You can find it at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. Also, follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach out to me or my co-host, Bruce Kelly, Catch us on Twitter. I'm at, at Benji Ryder, 
and Bruce's BD News Guy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week.